Uh, last week, David, having brought the ark to Jerusalem, the city of David, he then wanted to take the, uh, the next important step in replacing the, the temporary tent in which it sat, the tabernacle, with a permanent temple. Now, while the prophet Nathan had quickly encouraged David to do all that was in his heart, the Lord later that night informed him that he'd gotten ahead of himself and that God did not want David building him a house, a temple. We also learned that in that same breath, though, God declared that he would build a house for David. Yeah, speaking of that lasting and eternal legacy that would impact not only Israel, but the world as the Messiah and Savior would be born through his kingly family line. Jesus, who we know, of course, from the New Testament Gospels, was of the house and lineage of David. So while David might have been discouraged, he ended up being overwhelmed by God's gracious choosing of him. Now, today David is doing very well at this point and moment in his life, in our study of First and Second Samuel. The, the best, in fact, that we're going to see in his reign as king. These two chapters we're looking at this morning, you could, you could identify them really as a, a high point for David, sort of a high watermark. Chapter 8 outlines David's victories over Israel's enemies and a resulting expansion of the kingdom to what will be its greatest experience of enjoying the land that God had promised them. This is, this is really the biggest Israel's ever going to be, and Solomon ends up inheriting that same territory. Now, David isn't just lucky or hardworking. He's not just a really brilliant guy. He is diligently appropriating and living within the promises of God. He's choosing to live within those promises committed by God to Israel as a people and a nation. As king, it is his job to lead the people into God's best for them. And he's doing that, going after all that God has said is theirs. What he's already given them, you might say. But it speaks, I think, these two chapters and what's unfolding before us of deeper realities in David's life. He's going deep in trusting, seeking, and serving God. And, and that's going to translate not only into victories against physical enemies, which we're going to see, but spiritual ones as well. And, and what we might call potential internal enemies within David's own heart and life. As David leads the nation in growth geographically, he's going to grow personally as well or continue to grow. And I wonder, as we get started here and looking at these two chapters, it's a good place for us to pause and reflect on our own lives. Are you and I growing in that same way, internally? Because sometimes we can be guilty of stopping short of God's best, surrendering to a, a complacency, a status quo in our spiritual lives. Maybe you've been there before. Paul spoke to this in his letter to the Philippians, using himself as an example of this kind of passionate perseverance that we see in David and that God is calling each of us, you and I, to personally. 
Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already attained, Paul said. I haven't arrived, church in Philippi, or I'm already perfected. I'm not, God's not done working in my life. There's lots more room to grow. But I press on. Paul says, I am going to keep growing. I'm going to keep fighting forward to take hold of everything that God has for me. This, the apostle Paul, the very man through whom God was, was writing and expressing his word and heart and mind. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus also laid hold of me. Paul says, I want to fully grasp and enter into all of God's purposes for my life. The reason for which I was saved and redeemed. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do. Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. There was this constant, I'll call it a holy tension in Paul's life, where he was being pulled forward Forward into God's greater purposes and blessings. Forward into maturity. Forward into deeper trust and faith in God. A closer walk with Jesus. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I think this morning, in a sense, in looking at David's life, we see this kind of pressing forward. We see this, this outward expansion and an inward expansion as well. And it's one that I think you and I are being challenged toward today. We're looking at 2 Samuel chapters 8 and 9. And our message is titled, Growing Equals Giving. That is growing results in giving in our lives. If we're going to grow, if we're going to go deeper in following Jesus Christ, and we're going to follow him and expand in all the ways he wants us to, we're going to find that, that what follows is an outflow. What follows is, is more of his grace and goodness flowing through our lives to those around us. So let's pause and pray, and we'll move in a bit deeper here. Father, as we open your word this morning, we're praying, God, that, Lord, you would open our eyes. We're asking that, Father, you would minister to us those things that we need to hear, Lord. We're so thankful that, God, by your Holy Spirit, you bring application by your word to our lives in the ways that we need to hear it. We can sit here this morning and think, man, that's exactly what I needed to hear in that moment. And the person across the room hears something specifically tailored to their lives. Thank you, God, that you care about us, that you're speaking, that you're able to. Would you do that this morning? And would you give us ears to hear that word? God, that you would be at work in our lives both to will and to do for your good pleasure. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, David could have reached this point in his life and calling as king and chosen to just rest on his laurels where we're going, what we're going to see here. Victory on all fronts. He could have come off of that and, and just said, man, it is time for a vacation. I am taking a break. I mean, the capital is established. The ark is in its tent. And after all, God told him not to build a temple. So, I mean, that's kind of like the Lord telling him, you know, you deserve a break today. Um, David, he could have crossed his arms and said, um, I'm done. I'm going to put my feet up at this point. But he didn't. There was more work to be done. More promises to be seized, battles to be fought, growth to be had, more to give. So that's what he did. He kept growing and giving, and that growth became a blessing to those that he was around. We have to purpose to do the same. 
In the Apostle Peter's second letter, he speaks to this very thing in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17. He writes, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, from that drive that keeps us moving forward, persevering, even in the face of obstacles. He said, be careful, watch out for that. There's a lot of things in life that will slow you down, and you will be tempted to, to be sidelined and to take a break when you're not supposed to. Being led away with the error of the wicked. Whoa, bad things can come during those times. What should we do? Verse 18, but grow, keep growing, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because as we do, we'll find that we cannot help but give away what we're learning and growing in. So as we look at chapter 8, we're going to move through it considering three subjects War, wealth, and workers. David is going to lead the nation to pursue those lands given them by God, fighting the battles that they have to. And we'll learn about then the spoils of war, the wealth that Israel gains from those defeated peoples, as well as the leaders that David has assembled to help him govern. So verse 1, after this it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Metheg Amma, and that's another name for Gath, one of their prominent cities. You might remember that Goliath was from Gath, that great warrior. Took that city from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 2, then he defeated Moab, forcing them down to the ground. He measured them off with a line. With two lines, he measured off those to be put to death, and with one full line, those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. Now, this may speak to David sparing a third of the Moabite soldiers, this idea of laying them down and measuring them out, or it could refer to some other way of determining which men lived and which died. Either way, there was a measure of mercy shown here, and we do not have time to get into this in depth this morning, but many times we've addressed it on our, at our Old Testament Wednesday night study. Sometimes we can see some of the battles and wars and even peoples that God commanded Israel to defeat and annihilate and think, man, you know, God, he just was a bloody God and they were constantly chopping down their enemies. That's not the case. There were those that were specifically set apart for that kind of judgment, but it was just that judgment after hundreds of years of God giving space for those people to repent and their wickedness was so exceedingly great Judgment was the only option left. And you can study through the lens of scripture, history, and archaeology, and it becomes plain and, and quickly evident just how horrible these cult cultures were in, in their practice of, of wickedness in, in harming one another, their neighbors, and each other. Again, I don't have time to go into it in detail, but as we read this morning's verses, we will see not all the people that David fought against did he destroy completely? There were those who they established peace agreements with as well. Now, verse 3. David also defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. While en route, David, with his armies, to reestablish Israel's northern border uh, at the Euphrates, he encountered these Arameans that were led by this Hadadezer. 
and he subdued them as well. God had actually promised Abraham when he first had told him that he would become a great nation. He explained to him the basics of what would become their borders as a people. Genesis 15, 18. Unto thy seed I have given this land from the river you, uh, excuse me, from the river Egypt all the way down into Egypt to the Nile unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Those were Israel's original borders. Verse 4, David took from him, that is Hadadezer, 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 foot soldiers. Also, David hamstrung all the chariot horses, except that he spared enough of them for 100 chariots. So, this battle, King David, in this battle, King David, he deprived this Aramean king of 1,000 chariots, 700 horsemen, and 20,000 soldiers, possibly forcing them to become servants. For the kingdom he spared, he kept 100 chariots, killing the rest. I know, more brutality, right? And, and while that is the case, we have to recognize and understand a few things here. David could not leave these chariots and accompanying horses with his enemy. That would be like defeating another nation, but then leaving all of your military hardware there for them. That's foolish. We understand that, don't we? Some of us do. David understood, I can't do that. Secondly, the Israelites could only care for and use so many animals. They, they only had the capacity to deal with so many. And beyond all of that, the law had been very clear about the king of Israel not amassing wealth and horses to themselves. We've looked at that passage in Deuteronomy 17 many times. God did not want the kings of Israel to make the mistake of relying on their horses or on their military for victory and success on the battlefield rather than on God. So there are strategic reasons for why verse 4 played out the way that it did. What we see here and will in the remainder of this chapter, what, what's still ahead, is that God was giving David victories in every direction. North, south, east, and west, all points of the compass. The Philistines dwelt to the west along the Mediterranean, the Moabites to the south and east of the Dead Sea, and the Arameans closely, closely related to the Syrians to the north, and later the Edomites were going to see as well also in the south. In fact, after the Arameans of Zobah were defeated, Syrians showed up and met the same fate. And those two people groups were, were closely related and lived near one another. Verse 5. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. Then David put garrisons in Syria of Damascus, and the Syrians became David's servants and brought tribute. So the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So not only were they soundly defeated, but they became servants of Israel in the case of these, and they had to pay tribute or taxes and live under Jewish military rule. It was during the events of this chapter that David wrote Psalms 2 and Psalm 60. Several times as we've made our way through these books of history, First and Second Samuel, we've pointed out that, that we know when David was inspired to write certain psalms, songs of worship and praise to God, this, this musical poetry. And in fact, we read in Psalm 2, 
verse 8, about all of these battles and victories, David reflecting the heart of God. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. It seems as though David did this very thing. Stepping out and taking hold of what God had already promised. Placing his feet on the land that God had already said belonged to Israel. That's an important practice in our, in our faith and following of Jesus. That we would search the scriptures to know and understand those promises, those truths that apply to our lives and to stand in them. To say, God, you, you've promised me this. You've declared this about me to be true. I'm going to stand in this reality. I'm going to live knowing that it is true. David did this. He set out with his soldiers and said, the Lord, he's given us the nations. God said, that's our border. We're going to go up there like Joshua and place our feet everywhere God said that he would grant us the land. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 6 through 8, the law spoke to those places God had said he would give to Israel. In Joshua chapter 13, conversely, outlines all that the children of Israel had failed to conquer and occupy after they'd entered the land. It took a long time to get to this point. But now those gaps are finally being closed Verse 6, we read, so the Lord preserved David wherever he went. God's favor and blessing, it was just on David. It was like he had the Midas touch or something. He, he had this sort of Daniel kind of blessing where everywhere he went and everything he did just went well. God prospered him. And now, of course, from these battles, a lot of spoil was gathered. Real, literal prosperity. Wealth, wealth. Verse 7, and David... <clears throat> took the shields of gold that had belonged to the servants of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. Also from Betah and from Berothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a large amount of bronze. And when Toai, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, then Toi sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toai. All right, if this is a little too much with weird, obscure names, the bottom line is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's just happened here. David beat this guy's enemy, and he says, Aha! I see David just defeated the guy that's always giving me trouble. And David seems to be having victory against a lot of other peoples. Let's make friends before we become David's enemy. And that's what happens. He sends his son, the prince. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, articles of gold, and articles of bronze. David, rather than you having to go to the trouble of defeating us and taking these, we're just going to give it to you as a gift. Let's be friends. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 11. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, along with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Syria, from Moab, from the people of Ammon, and from the Philistines, from Amalek, and from the spoil of Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So from these various battles, David's amassing a huge storehouse of treasure. Now, is he enriching himself? Actually, he is not. 
the gold shields from the Syrians, the bronze, and everything else we just read in verse uh, 11 and 12 was brought to Jerusalem. And it was laid up in the storehouses. But then to add to this, we learn in verse 9 of another king who'd been watching of all these battles as, as we heard a moment ago. And David took everything that was brought from Hadadezer and his son Joram and brought those before the Lord. And all of this would be saved up and later used in the building of the temple, which finally would take place under Solomon. So David has successfully fought multiple wars, and through these battles, Israel's gained immense wealth. And now, in these last few verses, we learn of a couple more victories and those David chose for his cabinet. And those are these workers, those who served Israel, working with him. Verse 13, and David made a name, excuse me, made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians in the Valley of Salt. And it's important to point out that through this battle, though there was a name that was made for David, he gave God the glory and we read about that in Psalm 60, the other psalm that was written during the events of these chapters. Psalm 60, verse 12, through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. David was careful to give God the glory, which as we talk about God expanding our lives, growing that we might give, that, that through our lives blessing and grace might flow to others. One of the things that's important to remember is that as we fight battles, as, as we're being stretched and used by God, that we remember to give him the glory. Even if through that process of growth, we start to gain a name. Maybe people know who we are. Maybe we stand out in one way or another to be careful to give God the glory as David did in Psalm 60 in reflecting on all of this. Now, verse 14, he also put garrisons in Edom that is, in the south, throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord preserved David again wherever he went. But victories like this and the management of a nation, it's not a job for one man. And David knew this. As a staff, we've been reading through one of my favorite books on leadership, The 21 Laws of Leadership by John Maxwell. And one of those laws is the law of the lid. Any leader can, can only lead others to the degree to which he is personally equipped. I personally have a lid. I can only do so much on my own. I, I was not this last week operating equipment to smooth out this flooring, all right? And, and yesterday when we put the building back together, I, I was definitely not the only person. And on a Sunday morning, am I teaching every children's ministry class? Am I setting everything up? Am I putting up the donuts and playing guitar on stage? No. And when leaders try to behave in that way, it sets up uh, uh, some very dangerous and limiting factors within that organization, work, or ministry. To the degree that we can disciple and liberate and empower and raise up other leaders, we multiply our personal effectiveness. That should sound familiar, shouldn't it? Because Jesus had 12 disciples. And beyond that, he had seven, 70 that he set out. And outside of that, there were hundreds. So David, as he's establishing the kingdom and, and it's growing, he raises up leaders. 
Verse 15, so David reigned over all Israel and administered judgment and justice to all his people. We've got multiple offices and positions to be filled here. David is building a leadership team. Verse 16, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. He is commander of Israel's armed forces. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. He is the official record keeper and more so secretary of state. Zadok, the son of Ahitub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. Both likely at this time because the original tabernacle was still in place with everything except the Ark of the Covenant. And a lot of scholars believe worship was taking place both there and at this other tent where the Ark was in Jerusalem. Sarea was the scribe, another official record keeper. And then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over both the Cherethites and the Pelethites. These were mercenary or hired soldiers from other nations who had the personal responsibility of watching and protecting David. And we're not sure why it wasn't one of the tribes that did this. It may be this way favoritism was avoided, but needless to say, Benaiah oversaw them. And David's sons were chief ministers. These acted as assistants to David. David has been hard at work. He's been going after everything that God has promised. He's chosen to grow and expand instead of become lazy. He's pursuing God's calling and promises with all of his heart and strength. Paul wrote to Timothy, a man who we suspect at the time of Paul's writing was tired, struggling with being intimidated by people, those in his congregation who, who looked down on him for different reasons, and he was ready to give up. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, Paul writes to him and he says, let no one despise your youth. Timothy, I know there's people in your congregation that think you're too young. They think you don't know what you're doing. Timothy, ignore it. But be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Paul says, Timothy, just be who God's called you to be and stand in, in the character that God's building into your life and those attributes that are so essential to godly and effective leadership. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Paul says, Timothy, don't you dare give up. God's doing way too much in and through your life. You have this tremendous calling. Don't listen to the haters. Paul is saying, some of us need to hear that sometimes because in different ways and in our own personal application, there's those who, who seem to make it a career to be voices of negativity and discouragement. And if you think that's your calling, it's not. God's word has so much more to say about edification, building up, encouraging, rather than looking for everything that's wrong. Verse 15 Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely, entirely to them that your progress may be evident to all. Paul says, Timothy, I know you want to give up, but you better do the exact opposite. You press in. You keep growing so that that growth, whether you like it or not, people can't help but see it. Timothy needed to grow so that he could give. He needed to keep stretching in, in what were the darkest and the most difficult hours. 
He would tell Timothy elsewhere, be instant, be ready in season and out of season. <laughs> That's hard, isn't it? To do, to do the right things, to do the good things, to do the things God's calling you to do, the difficult, the hard things, when you're out of season, when you're tired. What that means is it's like when you go in your garden or in an orchard, and, and it's not season for whatever fruit or vegetable is to be born. Go in a, a grape vineyard when it's not season for the grapes. You, you go somewhere else, you go up into the Julian or Oak Glen to the apple groves, and, and, and the trees, they look like they're dead. Paul says we need to be instant in season and out of season. You may not always be bearing fruit, but there better be life. Because those trees in the orchard, you can, you can cut off a branch and look, and it's green inside. There's, there's life. There's, there's drawing of vitality from the soil by way of nutrients and, 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 and hydration. And there's going to be another harvest, another crop. It's coming. That process has to be ongoing in our lives. We don't get to take a day off, so to speak, from, from the growing that is abiding in Christ, that is pressing into the promises of God, that is expanding in every way that God wants us to in our hearts and lives. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in so doing, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Paul says to Timothy, don't, don't you dare give up. Because the depth that God wants to bring about in your life right now, it's not only preserving you, but it's going to minister to and it's going to save those around you. I think one of the enemy's favorite attacks is to discourage us in terms of our understanding of the influence that we have on others and whether or not it matters. They're not listening to you anyway. They don't care what you have to say. They're not paying attention to you. They don't respect you. When in reality... God, by his Holy Spirit, would say to us, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Keep clinging to the Lord. Keep clinging to the promises of the word. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. David had to be tired through fighting all these battles. And it would have been very easy to just kind of say, you know what? This is enough already. Let's, let's go back to Jerusalem, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build a lanai or a patio, and how about, you know, a pool or something like that, because that's what I hear other kings do. They're not always out here fighting constantly. I need, I need a break. Well, David gets his break later, and that causes him some trouble, doesn't it? Yeah. Like I told you, this is his high point, all right? Unfortunately, it, it goes down from here. Maybe like Timothy, you feel some disadvantage, some disability. Paul told him not to let that stop him. Keep going and growing. Keep learning and giving. Don't stop. Don't neglect your gifts. Don't ignore the basics of the faith. Keep pressing forward. Don't give up. David, he keeps pressing through, uh, through what had to be an exhausting season again. One battle followed by another. And that after having established the capital. And in the midst of it all, he's assembled this leadership team. But this perseverance, this commitment to trusting God's promises and doing the work that he called him to, I believe, ready David to do well in another challenge, which might have proved to be even harder, especially if he hadn't been faithful and disciplined in all that we just read. 
Going hard after God and pursuing growth and attention to basics will ready you and I for greater and deeper challenges. Opportunities to live that grace out, to rise to those challenges. God is interested in the kingdom of God, not just being about work that people can see. When I'm, I'm serving up front or doing something for God that's on the outside, he wants to see his kingdom expanded in our hearts. And that's what we see next for David. The, the work of God goes from the battlefield to his own heart. Second Samuel chapter 9, and we'll begin with verses 1 through 5. Now, Coming out of this place of strength, security, and victory, David's heart is directed toward home, where we find him wondering, our second point, about something, asking a question, actually. Verse 1, now David said, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, are you Ziba? He said, at your service. Then the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul? And Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. So the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodibar. Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodibar. For David, based on what we've observed in his life since we met him back in 1 Samuel, this is normal, <laughs> this kind of thing. But for any other monarch, the goal of finding offspring from the prior king would be to execute them, not bless them. Anyone who survived King Saul, who was still alive after his death, would by rights be heir to the throne through his lineage should they want to challenge David. And of course, that kind of thing has happened in history. Kingdoms have been overthrown, kings deposed. Of course, it was Saul's son Ishbosheth who did, in fact, split the kingdom early on. But none of this is on David's mind. He's not looking to settle any old scores. He's not interested in retribution. He's not trying to protect his throne or power. David wants to bless. He wants to give. He wants to find any survivors from Saul's household and show them kindness. Verse 1, is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David has been diligent about the details of God's promises to the nation. He's worked hard in leading God's people. Careful not to leave a promise neglected. And that, I believe, has positioned him to be sensitive and ready to do exactly what we're reading about right now. Something that in some ways may well be harder than fighting the enemy. I'll tell you what, in my life, there's been a lot of things that other people might judge and go, whoa, wow, that was such a battle. Look at that amazing victory. And then maybe something obscure off to the side or a little bit bizarre, like, oh, yeah, well, whatever. Like, no, no, that actually was harder. Being kind to the household of the man who sought to kill him. Now, we've seen it before, but the heart will always move away from God when not maintained. What I mean by that is, just because David's done it before doesn't mean it's going to be easy this time. We have to exercise the discipline 
to stay near to God, to tend our hearts in such a way that we're not only listening to his voice, but willing to obey. David is such a man. Having expanded Israel's borders, he wants to see if there's any work to be done at home. In his own heart and life. Borders that perhaps needed to be expanded there. David remembers Saul and Jonathan's families. He wonders if any of them might still be living. And so this Ziba steps forward and makes himself known. He'd been a a servant in the house of Saul. And since that time, he'd been caretaking Saul's property. And he knew of one of Saul's grandsons. A son of Jonathan who was still living. Indeed, verse 4, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. And this was east of the Jordan River in the plain area. Lodibar means barren land. This son, his name is Mephibosheth, he has been in hiding. No doubt fearful that were David to find him, he would do him harm. That's what he'd been told since the time he was a child. It was when he was five that he, he learned along with the other adults, the leaders in the palace that Jonathan and Saul had been killed on the battlefield. It was then that Mephibosheth fled under the care of his, his nurse or nanny, probably falling. The Bible tells us that he fell. And we would assume breaking his ankles or, or bones in his feet that were not ever properly set right. They didn't heal. So he was lame. He wasn't able to walk without crutches or someone helping him for the rest of his life. But from that time, David, in his mind, was framed as an enemy. So we understand what was customary, what Mephibosheth feared and what other monarchs would do when they came to power, overthrowing another. Why was David engaging in this countercultural act of kindness toward his enemy's offspring? For the same reason that he'd never lifted his hand against Saul. David has long since chosen to forgive his enemy, to trust God with his enemy, blessing and showing grace. Giving to Mephibosheth was simply the latest in a long line of showing grace and mercy, kindness toward those who didn't deserve it. But David had also promised Saul and Jonathan this very thing. Jonathan had spoken to David in 1 Samuel 20, verse 15. But you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. Not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Saul had asked David in 1 Samuel 24, verse 21. Therefore, swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me. And that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. And David swore to him that he would not do that. David had determined that he would please God as king and leader, but also as friend. He wouldn't just trust God on the battlefield, but also in more personal and intimate ways. That he would do those things that were hard, but right whether they were on the battlefield or, again, in the intimacy of a personal relationship. And this determination, I think, which caused David to keep growing, was because of that choice in his heart to do that very thing. Difficult but right things in every area of his life. 
Now, lastly, we'll look at verses 6 through 13 as David is watching. He is looking for a way to fulfill his promise to Saul and Jonathan to bless any survivors to give. Verse 6, now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had came, come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, here is your servant. So David said to him, do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. Then he bowed himself and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? David, having learned from Ziba where Mephibosheth was, summoned him to the palace, assuring that he would had nothing to be afraid of. Told him, don't be afraid. I, I want to show you kindness for your father's sake. David would give back to Mephibosheth everything that had belonged to Saul and Jonathan. And beyond that, he would effectively adopt him into his family, eating bread at his table alongside his own sons. This is, I mean, Mephibosheth has just won the lottery can you imagine living in fear, living in obscurity, apart from all of your family's wealth? And then the guy you've been afraid all your life wants to kill you, calls you into his palace and says, I'm giving you everything that your father had, and you're going to live like one of my own children. That should sound familiar to us, because there's something in that of our own story of experiencing the grace of salvation. That we who were sinners forever hopelessly lost and separated from God were sought out by him. And, and whatever wrong might have been counted to our, our debt was wiped away. And in exchange, we were given royalty and wealth and a place to sit at the table as a son, as a daughter Mephibosheth, he goes from rags to riches. David now wraps up the business of all of this. Verse 9, And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. So he calls back in Ziba, who's you know, the servant in charge of all of this. You, therefore, and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him. And you shall bring in the harvest that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. So Mephibosheth is, is going to have everything taken care of. And, and his wealth is going to continue to grow. But also Ziba and his family will be taken care of. And, and though so much has been given to this son of Jonathan, he, he, he has... Wealth on top of wealth because he's actually sitting there at David's own table alongside of David's children. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king has commanded his servants, so will your servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants of Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table, and he was lame in both his feet. Uh, 
There are many things that we could highlight about this morning's passage. But we learn here that Mephibosheth had in fact married. He's almost 21 now and and he has a son who along with any other family would join their father at David's table. And of course enjoy their newfound wealth and security in gaining Ziba's service as caretaker of Saul's properties that they have just inherited. David wanted to show kindness, grace to his enemy. He wanted to give. And I think he was positioned to do that. He was ready because he'd been committed for the, or to the hard work in other areas in his life. He'd not been afraid to fight the battles that God had promised he would win. He chose to keep growing. Because of that, he knew God would give him victory here too. And so in faith, he, he stepped in and did what he knew God was calling him again to do. To love and forgive the one it would be easier to hate. Because David had purposed to grow, he could give. David, who had received so much grace and kindness from God. This man for whom God was going to build a house. He could not help but extend grace and kindness to the one who didn't deserve it. David models for you and I what we might call, if if I could use this term, a a holistic relationship with God. Not compartmentalized, but, but whole. Touching every part of our lives. Not just honoring and living for God in one area or where he was strong, but but where it was hard as well. When you and I live that way, we're ready to do the things that frankly we would rather not or that we can't on our own. Maybe you've faced a lot of battles in your walk with Christ and you've seen some victories, but maybe you're tired And it's tempting to think that now you can ignore those things remaining to be done that you'd rather overlook. But you know something remains. There's unfinished business. Those prior battles were meant to prepare you for this one. One in which you do the counterintuitive thing. Love your enemy. Forgive them, bless, and and give to them grace, maybe. We who have received so much. Like David and also like Mephibosheth, we're unworthy. Mephibosheth, he, he wasn't just by rights deserving of death. Mephibosheth, he he was handicapped. There was nothing he could do to defend himself, nothing he could do to help himself. All he could do was receive the gifts that he was being given. That's our experience that we're to grow in. And God wants to bring through us as a result that same experience and grace to others. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 17 
Beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would that you and I would keep growing, that we might keep giving. Let's stand and pray. Father, as we close these pages of scripture for today, I pray that in our lives, Father, you would open up our hearts to those places where you want to work, God. Maybe we find ourselves this morning in the position of Mephibosheth. Maybe, maybe we're, we're where David is. Maybe we're struggling to connect the two. Tired. Tired of fighting. Tired of trying. Lord, we, we need a fresh outpouring of grace of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Lord, to forget what lies behind and press forward to what lies ahead. To not give up. Help us, Lord. And in this quiet moment as we prepare to just pour out our hearts in worship, if you're here this morning and you're tired, you're worn out, there's, there's something God wants you to move forward in, but you, you just, it's hard to even think about God wants to bless you. He wants to help you. He wants to encourage you to give you grace upon grace. Would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you if that's you this morning? Yes, 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 yes. Anybody just raising your hand, it's kind of a way of surrendering to the Lord and saying, I need this. And sometimes raising your hand in a group of people, it's a way of humbling yourself before God. No one's looking around, but that he might see. Anyone else this morning? Yes. Lord, in this quiet moment, I pray that you would encourage those that are discouraged. I pray that you would strengthen those that are weak. Thank you, Lord, that you, you don't break off a bruised weed reed or snuff out a smoldering flax, God, but you, you breathe life. You bind up. And I pray that you do that in our lives. Lord, that you would be this day at work in us both to will and to do for your good pleasure, that in our weakness, your power would be made perfect. Help us not to give up. Help us, Lord, not to assess the challenge according to our own strength, but to trust you and to invite your power. God, would you do more exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. In Jesus' name, amen.